Hello. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to thank you for joining us for part one of this podcast series, Improving Patient Outcomes with Quantitative Train-of-Four Monitoring. Today's activity is supported by an educational grant from Merck, Sharp, and Dome Corporation. I'm Dr. Ross Renew. Uh, I'm an associate professor of anesthesiology at the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine and Science in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm also the vice chair of research for our department. I'm really happy to be joined today by Dr. Deborah Falk. Deb, tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. Hi, Russ. Thanks for having me today. I'm excited to be here. I am working in Colorado. I am a pediatric anesthesiologist board certified at the University of Colorado, specifically at the Children's Hospital in Colorado, and uh, really excited to be here today and talk a little bit about quantitative monitoring. Great. Uh, I'm excited, too. I know you've done a lot of work in this area, and um, I've had the opportunity to read a lot of your work, and uh, hopefully some of uh, the members of our audience have, are familiar with some of the contributions you've made in this field as well. Uh, I do have a couple of learning objectives for today's podcast. At the end of the discussion, we hope that you will have a better understanding of the effects of, on clinical assessment, qualitative assessment, and quantitative neuromuscular monitoring as it relates to the incidents and complications associated with residual neuromuscular blockade. Well, let's get into it. Dr. Falk, what do you think are some of the most common complications that our anesthesia audience might identify uh, or might see in their clinical practice associated with postoperative residual weakness? Well, that's a really interesting question, Ross, because I think that most folks, and you probably experienced this as well, would say that there's no complications, their patients are all fine, and they can tell that they're strong enough, and there's really no issue with residual blockade. But contrary to that, there have been multiple studies, of course, that have shown that there can be significant issues when patients are brought out, extubated with residual blockade on board, and are brought weak into the, the PACU. So we know that uh, pulmonary complications can occur. We can see hypoxia, airway obstruction, need for reintubation. There have been some uh, reports of uh, postoperative complications in terms of atelectasis and pneumonia. And, of course, other potential issues in terms of patients just needing more care, staying in the PACU longer, just feeling generally crummy. Who wouldn't feel crummy if they were weak? <laughs> Uh, so there are a lot of things, I think, that can be seen in patients, even though the majority of clinicians probably ignore that and really believe that nothing is going on. Yeah, I, I think uh, you bring up a couple good points in that it, it seems that it's, it's on a spectrum, ranging from innocuous as, you know, just feeling crummy, like you mentioned, to, you know, the overtly weak patient who has to get reintubated. Certainly that stands out as, as something, but... You know, unless unless this complication is is on your radar and, and you're checking the level of blockade or using one of these monitors, it's it can be a lot of times. I think clinicians chalk it up to other things. Oh, they had they were too sleepy when we extubated, or they had got too many opioids, and sometimes they don't we don't make that connection that it was due to inappropriate neuromuscular blockade management. Yeah, and while not all clinicians identify patients that have postoperative residual weakness, I, I observe a, a great deal of variability in how we describe a number of key features in, in nomenclature associated with this topic. I mean, looking through the literature, there there's, doesn't seem to be great consensus on how we're going to refer to varying levels of blockade or even how we're going to assess the level of blockade in many of our patients. 
Could you describe the, the differences between clinical assessment or the use of a peripheral nerve stimulator and, and contrast that with objective or quantitative neuromuscular monitoring? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is a great point of education for a lot of us. I remember in residency, I could probably spit out the, yes, the threshold for recovery should be a top ratio of 0.9, but honestly never knew or saw a quantitative monitor during my training. So what that meant to me was pretty unclear. But there are a lot of ways that we as anesthesiologists can look at our patients and see how strong or weak we think they might be or they actually are. And I think that most people will fall back on kind of that time-honored approach of just looking at clinical signs uh, of weakness in their patients. So those are the things like Oh, they're, they're triggering the vent. They have adequate tidal volumes at the end of things. Can they hold their head up for five seconds? Can they squeeze my hand? Those are really the, the things that, uh, I think most anesthesiologists kind of grew up with in terms of determining the strength of their patients. Although it's been shown that all of those things can be done when patients are still extremely weak. And so really clinical assessments as such are not good for getting an accurate assessment of strength. The next thing that people will go to, and it's probably available to the majority of people in their practice, are peripheral nerve stimulators, as you say. And those are devices, we all have used them, I think, that you uh, can use to stimulate a nerve and see what the muscle response is to that stimulation. And most of us are either uh, assessing that visually or tactilely. Uh, many people will uh, kind of look at that and believe that they can tell with a train of four stimulation, which is what most of us are used to, that there is uh, four strong responses versus maybe some fade to that response, fade indicating that your patient is still weak. Uh, but unfortunately, again, still not accurate. We, uh, as humans, which we all are, can't tell if they're stayed until our train of four ratio drops below about four, uh, 40%. And we all know that the train of four ratio of 90% is what we need to tell that our patients are adequately uh, recovered. So moving into quantitative monitoring, uh, which is different than cl clinical assessment or what we call subjective assessment with these peripheral nerve stimulators, quantitative monitoring really gives us an objective tool to look at the strength of our patients. Um, that is where the train of four ratio comes from, and that is really the only way that we can tell if there's weakness in our patients between that minimal area of weakness where patients are in a train of four ratio somewhere between 40 and 90 percent. And we want to get them to at least 90 percent before they're extubated. Yeah, I, I agree with that take. Um, I, I also had a training program that the exposure to these objective monitors was infrequent, certainly. Uh, and I think that kind of mirrors the rest of the anesthesia community uh, at that time frame. There you know, 10, 15 years ago, there was not a whole lot of uh, devices out there available. And when I start thinking about clinical assessment, I, um, unfortunately, a lot of these efforts, these physical exam techniques require a cooperative patient um, to tease out. Uh, certainly the, the five-second head lift or squeezing the hand. Squeezing the hand um, and, you know, that doesn't happen a, a lot of times as our patients are emerging from anesthesia. Um, 
And I view the peripheral nerve stimulator uh, at this point, and I think that there's mounting evidence for this, and certainly our recent uh, ASA guidelines touch on this, is the peripheral nerve stimulator is probably really should be treated as a transition tool. And it's a, tra it's a tool that you use while you gain comfort and familiarity with some new objective quantitative neuromuscular monitors that are available so that we can deliver the highest level of care. Like like you said, I think it's important to remember a peripheral nerve stimulator is not a monitor. The the, the provider is tasked with determining the response to neuro, uh, neurostimulation. And um, from a variety of papers, um, uh, Stephen Thielen and his group in the Canadian Journal several years ago looked at uh, acceleromyography and the ability of uh, clinicians to correlate that quantitative monitor with a peripheral nerve stimulator a level of blockade, and there was significant overestimation on the degree of recovery when using a peripheral nerve stimulator. Uh, my group this past year completed a similar work, um, also in the Canadian Journal of Anesthesia, where we used electromyography uh, and blinded our uh, clinicians to the response to neurostimulation and used it analogous to kind of a peripheral nerve stimulator. And again, we found that we're consistently overestimating the degree of recovery in our patients uh, when using a peripheral nerve stimulator. And this can have consequences on leaving patients with, with postoperative residual weakness and the subsequent con uh, complications that you alluded to. I, I alluded to this a little bit ago, but there are some new monitors and new advances in this realm of objective monitoring. Um, and I know that you're familiar with several of them, uh, Dr. Falk. Could you talk on that a little bit for me? Yeah, so it's, I think, a really interesting time right now because we are getting more and more of these monitors that are coming out that are available. They really have some nice user interfaces. They're portable, and it's a great time to be looking at integrating these into the, your practice. If people remember way back when, and I actually never used these clinically, but I've used them in research capacity, uh, the the top watch is an acceleromyography device, which uh, acceleromyography looks at kind of tissue acceleration in terms of muscle strength, and they're really finicky. <laughs> they're they're kind of hard to use, and I can see why if this is what was available to you for clinical practice, it never really gained any traction. But since then, there have been a lot of new devices that have come on in the AMG realm that uh, have taking care of a lot of the kind of signal-to-noise issues that they've had, calibration issues that they've had, they're much more user-friendly. Uh, and then on top of that, in the last couple of years, you know, AMG, at least in my world, is not great because you have to have a free thumb to look at that tissue acceleration. And for pediatric patients, the majority of them, even if they uh, don't need to be, have their arms tucked to the side for surgical exposure or for the surgeons to be able to actually get up close enough to the patient to reach them. And so you can see where AMG, if I need a free thumb, is not going to work. But uh, EMG is a great option in the pediatric realm that looks at compound muscle action potential. So you don't really need to worry about a free thumb. Uh, and a couple of new devices have come on the scene in the last couple of years, which I think uh, give a lot of hope to those of us in pediatric practice that there will be devices that will be easy to use and implement into our practice. Yeah, I, I um, get this question often uh, when, when talking with clinicians about quantitative monitoring 
specifically in the pediatric population, and I'd like to delineate that I am in, a, in a, an adult-only practice uh, at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida currently, and um, I, at least looking on the internet and looking at manufacturers' website, I think they make very, uh, a lot of these manufacturers are coming around to developing some adapters and different pediatric-specific uh, monitors um, can you talk about some of the, the monitors that uh, are out there that have pediatric-specific um, capabilities, since that's your, your realm? Yeah, I'm not as familiar with the acceleromyography devices in terms of uh, any pediatric-specific uh, modifications that they've made to those devices, but I would anticipate um, that as long as the sensor is small enough to not impede thumb motion that they can be used in the pediatric realm. Um, for the two new EMG devices that are out there and available, they have recently in the last year developed pediatric sized electrodes, which are great um, because for those of us in the pediatric world, you know, they're not just small adults. And so we have all different sizes of every single equipment that you can have. So that we have the appropriate uh, things in front of us for the specific age and size of the patient. So um, some of these newer electrodes that are, are now small enough to fit on even uh, newborns are are incredible to see. And, and I definitely have to give a recommendation for, for your large survey um, that you conducted in, in anesthesia and analgesia last year, looking at surveying pediatric anesthesiologists and their practice um, as it relates to neuromuscular blockade management and whether it be monitoring or antagonists. I think it gives a, an excellent glimpse, glimpse into the, the realm of um, neuromuscular blockade management amongst pedi the pediatric anesthesiologists currently. Um, you, you mentioned uh, AMG versus EMG, um, and um, I, I think that it's really telling that there's been significant interest in this area recently, and it's evident when you go, you know, to our major national meetings and walk through ex the exhibitor hall. I can remember being at the uh, American Society of Anesthesiologists meeting seven, eight years ago, and there being one booth available with a, with a vendor who manufactures one of these devices. This past year, I, I believe I counted six uh, different manufacturers available um, and we used to be able to point to a paucity, a scarcity of a clinical, clinically useful, user-friendly objective monitors as a reason why this has been slow to ad adopt uh, quantitative monitoring, despite the evidence suggesting that it's um, best, best practice, optimal pr patient practice. Um, and so it's, it's been interesting to see the response from industry in developing um, some of these you mentioned two of the mod modalities, um, AMG. Uh, you mentioned EMG as it measures action potential and works in the tucked arms position. I've, I've played around a little bit with uh, KMG would be the other com commercially available one out there, uh, kinemiography. And for our audience, I'd like you to just kind of categorize that analogous to AMG or acceleromyography. So KMG also has a hand adapter that wedges between the thumb and index finger and then following neurostimulation, that uh, piezoelectric sensor between the thumb and index finger bends, and that degree of bend uh, then is translated into an objective measurement. 
you still need a moving, freely moving thumb for this. Um, and so this can fail in a tucked arm position as well. Uh, but yeah, and then like, like you mentioned, Dr. Falk, it's, you know, EMG has the ability to work when the, when the arms are tucked. Is there any downside to EMG monitoring? Well, EMG monitoring, um, you know, because of the nature of uh, the signal itself, uh, can certainly be more prone to interference from uh, electrical signals otherwise in the operating room. So I certainly have seen uh, noise be a problem, trying to d discern true signal from noise. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting when you talk about kinemiography and acceleromyography and thumb positions and all of that kind of thing. You know, obviously in the pediatric world, when we're predominantly tucked, EMG is really the most sensible thing for us to be using. Um, but certainly, and I've also seen this in operating rooms where, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons we can talk about, a monitor did not get on the patient, and then they've received some neuromuscular blocking agent, and it's kind of like, well, we didn't get it on. <laughs> so, you know, I always say, okay, well, you didn't put it on, and that's okay, but why don't, when you can get to the arm, why don't you put it on? <laughs> and see what you got. And so, you know, for me, it's the same kind of thing. We can talk about all of the upsides and downsides of the different monitors, and obviously a free thumb or limb is going to be really important for AMG and uh, kinemiography. But if that arm is tucked, you can still put it on when you're at the end, and the arm can come out and be free and, and see what your patient looks like. Uh, and that will help guide you in terms of, your uh, antagonist and reversing that block. You you have touched on one of my biggest pet peeves when uh, I'm bringing new monitors to our practice or talking about, and they someone calls me and say, uh, Doctor Renew, your monitor doesn't work. And I say, Oh, um, did uh, well, what did it? What was your baseline? Did you? What was the measurement? When you, oh, well, we put it on after we gave a big slug of rocuronium. And it makes troubleshooting these devices very, very hard if that's your practice. I think we need to get these monitors on prior to induction um, so that we can obtain a baseline, make sure everything's connected appropriately, so that when we are at deep levels of blockade following our, our induction dose of brachyronium, we, we're confident that that zero, that train of four count of zero, even that PTC count of zero is accurate, and it's not that the monitor was connected uh, incorrectly. Um, it just makes troubleshooting much, much tougher. One active area of research that I'm looking at right now is trying to use it to guide uh, when intubation conditions are optimal. Um, so more to come on that, but uh, something that I'd like to see the utility of these devices really uh, expand beyond just confirming adequate recovery. I think there's significant utility during the maintenance phase of neuromuscular blockade. You know, if you're targeting certain levels of blockade, maybe it's a, a robotic procedure that you want a deep level of blockade to keep the diaphragm paralyzed. You know, certainly having a reliable monitor in that setting is going to be very, very important. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think that that is one of the big areas of education just in even the management of neuromuscular blocking agents that people um, aren't as well aware of because I think most practice um, situations, what people will do is, you know, they shun the monitor and then they say, oh, 
my patient is triggering the vent, I better give more uh, neuromuscular blocking agent, not understanding that that diaphragm can move at very deep levels of blockade when you only have post-tannic counts left. So then they're looking at the monitor saying, well, I have no twitches, but my diaphragm is moving. This monitor is no good. (laughs) So just the education about um, neuromuscular blockade management in general and how we look at the monitors to be able to guide that, I think is really important. Yep. And that ties to a principle that you mentioned earlier. The diaphragm is uh, tough to keep paralyzed and it recovers first. And so when we're, when clinicians are using clinical assessments, hey, that's a, that was a 600 cc tidal volume. This patient must be reversed. Well, the diaphragm can be back, but there are so many other more important muscles uh, than the diaphragm at this point, particularly when we're trying to prevent aspiration pneumonia in, in, among our patients. Mm-hmm. So I would think with all these new advances that, you know, we're going to start seeing a decline or have seen a decline in the incidence of postoperative residual weakness. Um, but I, I haven't teased that out in the literature yet. Do you think that's going to happen? Uh, or do you think that um, we're going to keep doing kind of what we've been doing and the incidence of re- weakness will be anywhere from 30 to 60 percent, depending on the literature you read? Well, I think that's a really interesting question, and it could go uh, either way. I think that with the new evidence-based guidelines coming out, hopefully this is going to be higher on people's radars, and they're going to pay a little more attention to it, um, which gives me some hope that on the horizon we can see some improvement. The flip side of that, at least in my mind, is uh, what we've seen with the introduction of Sugamidex into practice and how that has really created a mindset in a lot of people. And we saw that in the survey that we did of our Pediatric Anesthesia Society um, a couple of years ago, that those that had trained since the introduction of Sugamidex really um, don't monitor as much as those that trained before then. And so I think it really creates this instance where people believe Sugamidex is so reliable and so efficient that they don't need to monitor anymore. Um, what I try to instill on my folks here at Children's is that, yes, it's efficient and, yes, it's reliable, but it can still fail. We've seen that in, in several reports in the literature. It can still fail, especially if you're not monitoring. And the dosing that you need to use of Sugamidex is actually based on that monitoring. So you can't just guess at a dose and uh, believe that it's going to work and have that be so. Absolutely. I would refer our readers to a, a couple articles uh, that are out there and available. I think the most commonly cited one is by uh, Dr. Kotaki out of Japan, um, in which the, his uh, patients, his research patients, were given uh, big slugs of Sugamidex without monitoring. And um, the uh, I think there was up to 9% of these patients still had some level of residual weakness I mean, I can't think of any other drug where we would, in anesthesia, where we would just give it and assume that it works. That's that's really not in our nature. You know, we we give a, a medication to help out to treat hypotension, whether it be phenylephrine or ephedrine, and then we repeat the blood pressure measurement. You know, it's it seems odd that we this would be a drug that we would just give and assume that it had its desired effect. We know that patients respond differently to to all of our medications, and it's um, there's significant heterogeneity in this response. It's a bell-shaped curve, and 
um, uh, we should be using our monitors to confirm that it had the that our neuromuscular blockade antagonist had the results that we wanted it to. I think one of the most telling pieces of, of data that's come out in that respect was Dr. Andy Bodel's article recently in anesthesiology, where he looked at dosing of Sugamidex and saw that, yeah, most people fell within the, the range that's indicated. Um, some needed less, but more concerning is some needed more, more yeah. than the indicated dosing that you would uh, never know if you didn't have a monitor on them. Yeah, I definitely also recommend that that paper. I think it's pretty neat. And it's introducing this idea that I think a lot of us have had for a while in that Sugamidex is titratable, can be potentially titratable. And um, uh, if you have a reliable monitor, uh, I know that I get a lot of questions about, you know, the, the morbidly obese patient and do I really need to give them a dose based on their actual body weight? And my take on any of these like dosing deviations is you can feel empowered by having a monitor to help guide you that your drugs have in the response that it's need that, that it needs, but um, I think, like you mentioned, that's a that's a really important paper as well. Yeah. So, so here's a question for you, Dr. Renew, uh, <laughs> because what I see is in that respect, um, a lot of times I'll see way more neuromuscular blocking agent administered than is necessary. So, just because the math is easy, you know, everything in pediatrics is, is weight based. And so it's easy to think about, oh, I'm just going to give one milligram per kilogram of, of rocuronium to this patient for intubation. Um, but then all of a sudden things are done and you still are in complete blockade with zero post-Titanic counts. And um, my kind of teaching to my trainees and colleagues is, just because it's easy doesn't mean it's without risk because once you're in that complete area of blockade, even titrating to a monitor, you you can't know that uh, the recovery that you see is sustained. Have you have you encountered that or what are your thoughts to that? Yeah, so you know deep levels of block end up pushing you towards giving more more sugamidex and I don't know that the numbers have been completely hashed out, but certainly the recurrence of neuromuscular blockade uh, has been reported um, when deeper levels of blockade are, are administered because um, maybe some of the neuromuscular blocking agent was sequestered or, um, you know, particularly if you're using a different, like Vecuronium, for instance, that doesn't have as uh, high of a binding affinity as Rocuronium, there's the potential for the drug to, to dissociate in the recovery room. And the, the instances where that happens is predominantly when you're giving less than the manufacturer recommendations for it. Um, and so there's still um, potential and risk. I think you need to have a high index of suspicion. Actually, what we try to do is leave, um, if we're using EMG monitoring, we leave the electrode on into the recovery room so that if one of our patients looks like they could be getting into trouble, we can just take a monitor over there and quickly exclude or include uh, that that patient has some residual weakness and give an additional Sugamidex. But I'm, I'm also concerned about this empiric administration of Sugamidex. Um, certainly, you know, one of the concerns with its um, uh, getting FDA approval were hypersensitivity reactions. And while it doesn't appear to be exactly dose-dependent, uh, higher doses um, 
uh, are uh, the, these hypersensitivity or even anaphylactic reactions uh, occur, tend to occur more frequently at higher doses. And, you know, it, it makes sense that you know, there's no, uh, it's not a, it's not a magic wand and it certainly has made us a little sloppy. Uh, I, I remember the challenge for me when I was training was trying to learn how fast it was going to take my surgeon to close uh, fascia so that I could um, administer, ne I, I could have the option to administer neostigmine at the end. And it was much, much less forgiving. Um, I think some of our trainees that, that practice and, and really becoming in tune with the, the timing of the operation, some of that has, has deteriorated and gone away because you can just give a bigger dose of Sugamidex like you see so frequently. And, and there's cost considerations to that also. I mean, it's not, it's not free. It is one of the most expensive drugs we have on our cart. And when you start switching from one to two vials, now we've doubled the cost of that. So there's important implications with that. So with the availability of Sugamidex and the idea that the drug is titrated uh, or can be titrated with, with an objective monitoring, do you see any obstacles to, to a practice maybe that only has access to a peripheral nerve stimulator currently and wants to implement and introduce quantitative monitoring into their practice? Well, I think that uh, maybe one of the obstacles has already been passed if they have peripheral simulators but they're wanting to implement quantitative monitoring, and that is just the, the reluctance and the perception that people have that they're good enough and they don't need any of these devices to correctly assess their patients. So um, I think for implementing monitoring into your practice, that's probably the biggest hurdle that you have to get past in terms of people wanting to adopt these monitors. Um, you know, other issues I think that uh, people struggle with, the, the big ones, are uh, cost concerns, and that can come into play with Sugamidex, too, as you just discussed. But cost concerns of acquisition of the monitors, um, if you're talking about EMG monitoring that has kind of specialized sensors that are uh, a cost, a recurring cost in and of itself, then that can also come into play. Uh, and then there's just kind of the adoption of new monitoring in general. You know, there are some, they talk about uh, early adoption of people that are just like something new and shiny to play with. Give it to me and I'm going to run with mm -hmm. it. Um, but, you know, the next level of people that say, show me the money, show me the evidence that this is going to do something for me. Uh, and then those that are just resistant to cross the board. But um, when you when you get in there, uh, I think that those that need a little more help will come up with other reasons, such as this takes too much time. It's uh, too finicky. It fails all the time. And uh, it really impedes my workflow, so it's not worth it for me to put yeah. that in. And I've seen that in our practice where people are like, uh, you know, starting their case, and I'll be like, oh, do you, do you want to put a monitor on the, the wrist? And they're like, oh, I'll do that later. I don't have time for that right now. <laughs> but, you know, clearly, and, and you've studied this, I know, it does not take that long to put that sticker on the wrist. It was like what twenty seconds? Yeah, yep, nineteen seconds. It's 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 minimal amount of time for a significantly improving the the safety profile. And you know that that person who's rushing, who doesn't want, who wants to cut that corner, 
um, they're going to be the person that says, well, I put it on after induction and it's not working because it's the train of four counts zero. Uh, and then again, we don't have any way to troubleshoot that because we don't know if there was ever, if it was connected appropriately uh, also. And now the arms are tucked and you're having a tough time getting into there uh, to adjust it, uh, unfortunately. Yeah. And I will say at least, you know, in the world of pediatrics where all of the kids will go to sleep breathe in an inhalational gas and then we'll put in an IV because you can't poke kids when they're awake in the time period that it takes somebody who says, I don't have time to do that. Uh, as the kids getting off to sleep, I've got the, the sticker on the wrist and have gone through the startup before they've even gotten the IV in. Yep. And once they're ready to push some stuff, I say, you're great. Your stimulus strength looks perfect. You're good to go. And they look at me and go, Oh, really? I was fast. Like, yeah, it doesn't take much time. It doesn't take that much time. I think there's other creative ways that I've I've uh, talked with, compared notes with other folks and seen. So we have a couple very experienced OR nurses, and um, they'll put the monitor on for us at the start of induction very frequently. And we've got a couple uh, pre-op nurses as well that if we're going to be using EMG monitoring for that case, uh, I feel comfortable leaving the electrodes with them, and they'll connect it for me so that when we get into the operating room, um, it's connected and it works and we can uh, be a little faster and more streamlined when we do it. It's also nice about that is it gives the electrodes a little bit more time to cure. And I think they can work a little bit better um, mm -hmm. if they've been on for 30 seconds. So with some of the obstacles identified to, to implementing and, and utilizing monitoring, um, we've talked a lot about pediatric patients, which is certainly a, a special population that has specific considerations that you've uh, adequately gone through and, and discussed in great detail. Um, are, are there any other patient special populations that have certain monitoring considerations that concern you or, or things that um, someone who may not be used to monitoring should consider? Yeah, I think anytime you're talking about monitoring uh, neuromuscular strength, you have to think about patients whose neuromuscular, neuromuscular strength could already be impaired and what that means to your monitoring and the accuracy of the results that you're seeing. So patients um, with, uh, you know, degrees of paralysis or neuropathy, things of that nature. Um, I always think in those patients, do I even need to be using neuromuscular blockade at the outset of things? But if you do, you always have to take those things into consideration. And for me, it's looking at uh, that. That's when it's really important to put the monitor on first. Um, despite everything that we've talked about and people's reluctance to do that and just putting it on after. Understanding where you're starting from with those patients is very important. Um, patients, I think, who are uh, larger, so have issues of obesity, can also be a problem. Um, you have to understand that, especially with, with EMG, what you're looking at is uh, capturing the muscle action potential, and it's, uh, you have to go through layers and layers of your patient to make sure that your signal is getting through and what you're seeing is correct. That can be an issue, and you may have more uh, information on that population uh, uh, yeah. and have uh, a lot of big kids here. Uh, yes, this is a, a patient population that's near and dear to my heart, um, and certainly there can be obstacles with monitoring the obese patient like you were alluding to. Um, there's some prep work you can do to try to increase your chances of success in these patients. Getting the monitor on early allows the silver, silver chloride electrodes to cure. 
Um, certainly, if there's a lot of hair over the ulnar nerve, um, I've clipped I've uh, uh, clipped the hair from there uh, with one of our disposable razors in the pre-op area to get good contact. Then, then I think this also lends itself to discussing calibration. So, a lot of the devices now are coming out with you know more manual modes that don't require calibration. So calibration tries to find the optimal current that gives the best signal to noise ratio uh, and it teases out uh, which what the super maximal current will be and one manufacturer of a AMG device in particular the top scan they, they don't the manufacturer doesn't even recommend calibration the device just defaults to 60 milliamps and a 300 pulse width um, 300 microsecond pulse width and uh, it's kind of the the same it's Think of it as, as turning, taking your peripheral nerve stimulator and cranking it up to 10 uh, each time on that, that analog dial. Um, because really when we're, we're trying to use these devices for clinical, routine clinical care, um, getting an adequate neurostimulation is the most important thing, not necessarily what current you did it at. You know, certainly for research purposes, I think uh, performing calibration isn't going to be important but um, not necessarily, uh, it doesn't have to be done for routine clinical care. So my obese patient, I'm skipping calibration. I'm turning it up as, as high as the, the thing can go because like you, you mentioned, the, the nerve is buried underneath uh, more tissue than, than a patient who, who's not obese. Um, I've, I've played around with monitoring on the, the feet as well. And I think when we start thinking about uh, neuropathy, uh, particularly in diabetics, um, we underappreciate the, the incidence of it and the impact of trying to monitor at the feet. Certainly any disease process that insults the neuromuscular unit, um, such as uh, diabetic neuropathy, is going to uh, preclude you from, from reliably monitoring these patients, like you had, you had mentioned. In addition to calibration, there's also the step of normalization, which has uh, some importance with uh, AMG monitoring. You, you'll see with AMG monitoring, the baseline values could exceed 100%. Um, and uh, when you start considering recovery uh, train of four ratios, uh, the process of normalization puts that recovery train of four ratio in the context of the baseline, which again, may exceed 100%. So you, you want to, while the, the the thought is to have a 90% uh, train of four ratio at the adductor polysis for recovery. It may actually be, have to be higher than that when we normalize uh, with, with AMG monitoring because the baseline values often exceed 100%. And I've seen it documented as high as 141%. And that's just a caveat to AMG monitoring that I want folks to, to consider. Um, but, you know, regardless of the modality that you're, you're interested in, I think we've gone over a variety of different monitoring modalities and patient populations, different settings where they, we may find utility in one versus the other. Uh, Dr. Falk, do you have any closing tips or pearls for our audience who may be interested and motivated now to in introduce monitoring into their practice? Yeah, I would say... Um... For those interested in uh, bringing it in, find find that group with you that is motivated, that understands the monitoring, how it works, uh, and can really champion that in your group to be successful at bringing it in. Implementation sciences we've seen in, in several uh, reports of late. The latest, I think, came out from uh, Dr. Wade Weigel. Uh, a year or two ago, was very uh, specific about all of the things that needed to be done in that group 
to be successful in implementing um, monitoring in the practice in terms of education, uh, protocols, and whatnot. And so getting past that resistance that people have is difficult. So find the find the motivated group that you have, learn about the monitors, and uh, just be consistent and uh, to, to drive it forward. I love it. Hopefully some of those motivated local champions are in the audience right now. CMEO programs always include SMART goals to help you translate information into action. SMART stands for Specific, Measurable, Attainable, Relevant, and Timely. Our SMART goal for this program is for you to identify opportunities for implementation of quantitative neuromuscular monitoring in patients receiving neuromuscular blockade. Please join us for Episode 2, in which we discuss best practices in neuromuscular monitoring with a specific focus on the 2023 ASA guidelines, as well as Episode 3, in which we discuss best practices in the pharmacologic reversal of neuromuscular blockade. All three podcast episodes, plus a variety of educational activities and resources, can be found online at the CME Outfitters Virtual Education Hub. To receive continuing education credit for this activity, participants must complete the post-test and evaluation online. Thank you, Dr. Falk and all of our learners out there for joining us today. Be sure to stay safe and take care.